If you think that's easy, uh, I'll take any volunteers right now. Stand right here and face the audience and say Psalm 100. Who's ready? Yeah. Uh -huh. <clears throat> Acts chapter 9. I love the Word of God. Do you love the Word of God? And uh, remember, as we're going through the book of Acts, really, uh, we're having a history lesson here. But it's the kind of history you're not going to get in school. This is history with the inside view of God himself. In fact, we're seeing the acts of God recorded by God. There's no history book like it in the world. Isn't that great? And as I said before, as we are going through the book of Acts, we want to keep remembering the, uh, the grand design that's here, the overall picture. And to do that, I said there are three good passages of Scripture that will help us do it. The first one is in Matthew 16 where Jesus said, I will build my church. We see him doing that. It's being worked out. Isn't that neat? Jesus said he was going to do something, and we're seeing him do it right here in these pages. Uh, and then at the beginning of the book, he said how he was going to do it. He said, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And we're seeing that ever-widening circle happening before our very eyes, aren't we? And uh, again, uh, I read this section from 1 Corinthians. This is so important because when God does things, he doesn't do them the way we do them. We always go out and get the most uh, promising people when we do a project and uh, the best circumstances, you know, the most money. In other words, we put in everything that we think, humanly speaking, will make the project succeed. Well, God goes out and he, he prefers to get the most unpromising people. Remember, we saw that, for example, the very beginning, the first day of the church, of all the people for the Lord to put his hand on to raise up and preach that sermon. Peter, Peter, the one who had denied even knowing the Lord. The Lord delights in using the weak and uh, the uh, not-so-powerful, the poor. He says that in 1 Corinthians, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring the things that are to nothing. Why? He, he tells us why. That no flesh should glory in his presence. That's why he does that. So when it's all said and done, and you look at all these unlikely tools that he used, you say, all the glory goes to God. That's the way it should be. So here we are at a critical juncture. Uh, Stephen, as we saw, was, was stoned to death. Um, God dispersed the uh, believers. He actually used that terrible situation for good, didn't he? By spreading the believers. And we learned that a true believer has to talk about Jesus. You just can't help it. And so that's what they did. Wherever they went, they talked about the Lord Jesus. So instead of uh, squelching the movement, it's, it spread it. And now we're ready for the next phase of Jesus' prophecy, and that is the uttermost parts of the earth. There's something else. This is something I believe the apostles and all those who heard that Jesus say that they were going to be his witnesses that they didn't know. And that is that the next people on the agenda is the Gentiles. And I'll promise you the apostles, when they heard Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, they were thinking Jews. In fact, when they were going to the othermost parts of the earth, they were going to go to the synagogues. 
and reach the Jews there. That was their idea. Little did they know that not only would they be reaching the Gentiles, but eventually God would judge the nation and harden their hearts and blind their eyes. And by and large, it would be hard for them to hear the gospel because they had rejected the Messiah. And it would be the Gentiles that would respond in great numbers. So that's the corner that the Lord is turning now and building his church, okay? Let's think about it. Here, here you are building the church. We need someone now to spearhead the movement out, not only to the rest of the earth, but to the Gentiles. Who's your candidate to do that? Well, maybe one of the apostles, a great leader, huh? You know, Peter, maybe a John. How about Philip? We saw what an evangelist Philip was. What, what a likely prospect, huh? Remember what we said in the introduction here. God likes to use the foolish things and the weak things. And so, of course, we know, but it still should not cease to amaze you when you realize that it's no one less than this one who was wreaking havoc on the church, Saul, the Pharisee. That's, isn't that wonderful? Man, I love that. He could have used Peter, John, James, any of the original apostles, or even Philip or some of the other uh, brethren. He gets this guy we've been introduced to who is just destroying the church. He's going to turn him around. What he's going to do is he's going to save his soul. And he's going to use him to take the gospel. Listen to this. Not just to the rest of the world, but to the Gentiles. Wow. So let's see how he does it here. Let's start reading in verse 1, chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way, that is Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting it is hard for you to kick against the goads so he trembling and astonished said lord what do you want me to do then the lord said to him arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do and the men who journeyed with him stood speechless hearing a voice but seeing no one then saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened he saw no one but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank okay Saul here he is continuing his reign of terror against the Christians very um, uh, motivated uh, young man he went and got the papers to uh, give him permission to go and bring the Christians back and uh, I love this picture here. Do you notice that the way God describes it? It says, breathing out threats and murder. Whenever I read that passage, I picture a fire-breathing dragon, you know? <sighs> breathing out threats and murder against the believers. He wants to stop this movement now. Now, little do we know that God is at work in his heart, and it has been for some time. We're going to find that out here in a minute. But you'd never know it by watching his activities. So uh, he's almost to his destination, Damascus. That's north of Israel, up in uh, modern-day Syria. 
And when they're almost to get there, this light shines. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting light. It's not, it's not a, uh, like a uh, headlight or something. It was sudden. It was all around him. And it says it was from heaven. It was the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus revealed himself in his glory and shone it on uh, Saul at this point. Well, not surprisingly, he fell to the ground. I think I would too. And he heard a voice. And the first two words were his name. Saul. Saul. And then a question. Why are you persecuting me? Wow. These were the words of the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting, the questions. The Lord is the great questioner. And uh, he rarely asks people yes or no questions. You ever notice that? He asks questions that make you think. And they often make you think about yourself. And that's the kind of question he asked Paul. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Imagine being Saul and hearing that question. You see, he's getting, he's getting to ask to uh, consider his motives. Why is he doing this? And uh, he might, if he's probably thought it through, and he's probably justified his actions of murder and uh, havoc by saying, well, I'm serving God, you know. I'm doing a good work here. And yet he's just consented to murder. And I think deep down inside, in fact, we know it. We're going to see it in a second here. He's struggling with what's going on. And so the Lord Jesus reaches in and he puts his finger on Saul's heart. And he says, I want you to think about why you're doing what you're doing. Good question, huh? You know, he still asks that of people today. He'll come up to a person, not in an audible voice, but through their conscience, and he'll say, why are you doing what you're doing? Why? Good question. You know, sometimes we have to say, Lord, there's no good reason. There are a lot of uh, bad reasons, but right now I can't think of a good one. In particular, he said, why are you persecuting me? Isn't that interesting? Who was he persecuting? Well, it was the disciples. It was the believers. Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the Christians? Isn't that interesting? He said, why are you persecuting me? Wow. Jesus identifies so closely, you see, with his believers. Well, uh, Saul is, is certainly arrested here. And he wants to know... Who it is. I think he suspects, by the way. <laughs> but he, he says, uh, who are you, Lord? You know, think about it. You're going down the road and there's, there's this bright light that blinds you in the middle of the day and a voice that comes and addresses you by name and says, why are you persecuting me? I'd suspect that it's not your average guy, you know? And I think he knew deep down inside who it was. And I can just only imagine how he must have felt when he heard these words. I am Jesus. Think of that. 
Saul thought he was dead. They'd done away with him. <laughs> and here he is addressing him, risen from the dead on the road to Damascus. And those words must have just penetrated to his heart. He realizes that the Lord Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. And the, and the Lord's words are few here, and yet they are so appropriate. Because Jesus then says to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And listen to this. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very profound. I'll tell you, with those words, Jesus opened a window into Saul's heart. Not only for Saul, but for us as well. And we can see inside. A goad, I should have brought a big stick with me, I guess, today to illustrate it. But uh, a goad, they still use them today in uh, the Middle East and other places. It's a, it's a big stick. I mean, you know, like that, big around, right? And when you have a stubborn animal like a donkey or, or a sheep or something that refuses to move, the, the shepherd or the person that's trying to move this animal along and get them to go in the right direction will use this big goad, you know, uh, and prod them. You understand, right? You've seen that probably, right? Yeah? But some animals, when they're prodded, when they're goaded, instead of just cooperating so they don't get prodded anymore, they stand there and they, and they kick. You know, they won't move. Instead of going the direction that the driver wants them to go, they just sit there and kick against... Isn't that silly? You know? And they keep getting prodded and they keep kicking, you know? And that's what Jesus says to Saul. What he says is, I've been, I've been goading you, Saul. And, and Saul knows that. And, and all Saul has been doing, he's been kicking. The Lord Jesus has been trying to get him to go in a certain direction. And Saul, instead of cooperating with the Lord, has just been kicking and fighting against it. And Jesus looks into his heart and he tells Saul something. He says, Saul, it's hard for you, isn't it? Is that interesting? That's true. Because the Lord does it today. He'll try to tap someone, you know, on the conscience. Try to get their attention. Try to get them move in a certain direction. Everybody here knows what I'm talking about. And sometimes, rather than just cooperate and go all the way he wants us to do, what do we do? Yeah. We just stay right where we are and we kick. No, Lord, I'm not moving. Right? It's hard to do that, isn't it? It's hard to fight God, isn't it? Because praise God, he's, he's a patient God and he doesn't give up easily. I'm so glad he doesn't. And he hadn't given up on Paul. Because I really believe there's a cross correlation here with something we just saw. Let's go back to Acts chapter 7, the very end of the chapter. We're going to see three of those goads that Jesus had tried to use on Saul. <clears throat> you remember our brother Noad preached on this. And if you remember, Stephen had been going on for 40 plus verses in this long chapter, giving this wonderful history of the nation of Israel. And I believe he was really building to a point and he had just finished here in verse 48, talking about the Lord after Solomon had built uh, the temple. He says, 
However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? And he's going along in the narrative here. He's just finished the building of the temple and talking about the greatness of God and how he doesn't inhabit in, in little buildings built by hands. And, so, and Saul is hearing all of this along with the other Jews standing there. And suddenly, Stephen, in the middle of this little history, look at verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. Whoop! You think that might have got their attention? You know, they're thinking Solomon. Okay, well, let's uh, talk about the wisdom of Solomon. You know, where's, where's he going to go next? And all of a sudden, he just stops short and he puts the fin- points the finger at him and he says, you guys are resisting God with your, your stiff necks and your hard hearts, just like your fathers did. I believe that was goad number one. Because Saul was there and he heard that. And I believe among the listeners there, God had Saul particularly in mind. And I think Saul heard it. And I think it got to him. God does this sometimes, you know, uh, to get our attention. He uses the shock treatment when other methods don't, don't work. Remember uh, David? This is, this is a great example. Uh, dear David, who is a man after God's own heart, the author of most of the Psalms in there, committed adultery, murdered the woman's husband, and covered the whole thing up. I mean, that's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? You would think that David, with that tender heart, wouldn't, wouldn't have even gone past square one. But you see, he was a man like anybody. And when a man gets that deep in sin, and, and, and you know, we'll do that. We'll harden our hearts. We'll just, we don't want to repent. And obviously, that's, that was the state of David. And how could God get through? Well, he used the shock treatment, and he appealed to David's shepherding heart. Remember, he was a shepherd originally, and he brought in Nathan the prophet. And Nathan told him this wonderful story, kind of like Stephen here, just this story about this guy that, uh, this rich guy that had all these sheep, and he had a visitor come through, and he wanted to feed this guy some uh, mutton. I don't like lamb myself, but uh, it's big in the Middle East. Too strong for me. Rather than go to his own flock, though, and, and, and take out a, uh, a sheep and, and slaughter it and, and cook it for his guests, he went next door to this, to this poor uh, rancher or whatever, shepherd, who only had one little ewe lamb, we're told. And it was like a pet, like a household pet. You can just imagine. But this guy had the power, and so he just went over and took that one little ewe lamb from this poor guy, his only little lamb, and slaughtered it and cooked it for the guests well david hearing this story he is irate not not only is the king but as a former shepherd and he jumps up and he says as i live this man deserves to die and nathan very calmly looks him in the eye and he says you are the man he'd taken that little ewe lamb bathsheba from uriah the hittite in the midst of his uh, hundreds of concubines and, and who knows what else and stolen this guy's wife and then killed him and all of a sudden it all dawned on him what he had done and you want to know what his reaction was read psalm 51 one of the most beautiful psalms in the bible 
You ever feel like you need to confess sin to God? Go turn to Psalm 51. It'll help you. So, so God had used the shock treatment on David, and, and he's using it, I believe, here in Acts 7 on Saul. The story wasn't getting anywhere. And so suddenly he turned around and he said, you stiff-necked and hard-hearted. You always resist the Holy Spirit. But Saul kicked. So I think the second goad is down here in verse 60. As uh, Saul is guarding the cloaks and the coats here, Stephen dies. And as he dies, he says this, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You think that was a goad on, on uh, Saul's heart? Well, I'll tell you what, when he, when he saw Stephen say that, he had to say, man, I would never do that. He saw this man die this way and ask forgiveness <laughs> for the ones that were killing him. I think that really spoke to Saul's heart. I think that was goad number two that we know about here in this passage. But here's Saul with all of his friends around and he's, he just consented to murder, so he's guilty of it as well. And he's too proud. He's, he's not going to give in. So he's going to kick again. He's, he's resisting God. He's doing exactly what Stephen said here. He's resisting the Holy Spirit. I think the third goad was in his conscience. And I think it's verse 1 of chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. You have to think about Paul, uh, Paul's mind, Saul's mind. He had to justify what he had just done. What kind of torturous thinking would he have to go through to justify killing this innocent man? I think there was a real battle going on, a real struggle. And that's what the Lord Jesus is talking about here. The Lord Jesus knew what was going on in Saul's heart, that he'd been fighting against God. God had been speaking to him and he'd refused to listen. He's resisting the Holy Spirit and he's pointing it out to him. He says, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Well, we don't have a long sermon on here in here uh, on exactly what happened now at that juncture when the Lord Jesus said that. But we do have this. After he said it, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Listen to this. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's eloquent. Not a lot of words. But to me, that says it all. We don't have the proud, self-righteous Saul anymore. I think he's broken. Here, this is the voice of brokenness and humility. He knows who it is. He knows he's talking to the Lord Jesus. He calls him Lord. And he says, what do you want me to do? Isn't that great? That, that, that's the voice of availability, you know? That's kind of scary to, to say that to the Lord. You know that? That's, there's no strings attached there. That's an open-ended, here I am, Lord, what do you want me to do? You ever done that? That's what he wants. And that's what Saul is doing now. He's saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? In essence, he's saying, I've been wrong all the way. I'm, I'm, I'm turning from my sin. I'm turning to you. Here I am. Take me. What do you want me to do? I love it. Saul got saved, okay? <laughs> he stopped kicking. Maybe the Lord's been goading you. Maybe he's been talking. Maybe you don't know about times where God has tried to talk to you and instead of cooperating, you've kicked. Maybe it's time to stop kicking. Maybe it's time to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Think about it. Saul did it. He didn't regret it either. 
in essence, the Lord Jesus was saying to him, Saul, stop resisting me. Stop justifying yourself. Stop running your own life. Stop fighting against me. Forsake your pride and come to me as the sinner that you are. And he did. Well, the uh, verse 7 tells us about the, the group of men that were with Saul in his travel. He wasn't alone. Other, other Jews had accompanied him, obviously. And it says that uh, they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Later on, when he uh, testifies before, I think it's Agrippa, he says that uh, they didn't understand the words. They heard the sound, but they didn't get the words. Only Saul heard what the Lord Jesus said. And as I thought about that, I thought of what the Lord Jesus said. He said, my sheep know me. I call them by name. They hear my voice and follow me. And I've seen that. A true believer really recognizes the voice of the Lord Jesus and they listen to it and they follow it. Others just hear sounds, noise. If you're not a sheep, you're not going to hear it. But if you are, you hear it and follow him. And uh, verse 8, we're told that uh, when he opened his eyes, he saw no one. In other words, he's blind now. So I like that because uh, they're forced then to do what the end of verse 8 so beautifully describes. It says they led him by the hand <laughs> and brought him into the. I love that. Brought him into Damascus. Here's Saul, been breathing out threats, ready to kill more Christians. And now here he is like a little babe being led into the city. ironic he he came here prepared to lead christians out of the city bound you know later he says chains that was that was the picture he had and here he is now being led into the city bound by the love of christ isn't that beautiful well he's got three days to think about it told in verse nine that uh he didn't see for three days and he didn't eat or drink that's pretty good. No TV, no video games, no distractions, not even food. What do you think he thought about? <laughs> Boy. The last, remember the last vision that he had was of the glory of the Lord Jesus and the last uh, words that he heard on the road were the words of the Lord Jesus. And I'm just wondering what his thoughts. And, and on top of all of it, realizing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Boy, I, so much scripture must have just come alive to him at that time, you know, as he stopped fighting and kicking and he'd finally uh, come to the Lord Jesus. Well, the Lord has plans for him, as we know, and let's see uh, how he begins to work them out here in verse 10. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. 
And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Obviously, this isn't the Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira, another brother. Simple believer. We really know very little about him. You know, uh, Saul probably would have uh, appreciated if maybe Peter would come. You know, let's, let's get the monkey mucks over here to uh, confirm what's going on. So the Lord Jesus says, no, he gets his nobody named Ananias to come and to uh, give Saul back his sight. <clears throat> and um, it's interesting, he's at a, uh, a particular house and the name of the street is Straight. And I would imagine this house is probably where they were going to stay while they were in town, probably the house of his Jewish friend. And Saul is there praying and there again, I would love to eavesdrop. What do you think, Saul? What would he be praying now? Wow. Now that he's had his eyes open, you know? I, I think maybe some, some would be confession, huh? You know? As the weight of his guilt now has really come down on him and he sees what he's done. I, I think sometimes he'd be in tears as he would freely confess to the Lord his sin. I think there'd be some worship there too. And uh, maybe some thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for not giving up on me, you know. Lord, thank you for not striking me dead at the death of Stephen. Boy, I think there was some fervent praying going on in that room. Well, the Lord Jesus had prepared uh, Saul for the visit of Ananias. This is so wonderful. We said at the beginning, let's not call this book the Acts of the Apostles. Let's call it the Acts of Jesus, okay? <laughs> and you see it here. Uh, the Lord is so careful in building his church. He appeared to both men to prepare them. Why? Because they both needed to be prepared. <laughs> uh, what are the odds you think that you go up to Ananias and say, you know Saul of Tarsus, right? I want you to go over there and visit him. <laughs> you know? You know those papers he's got to haul all Christians back to Jerusalem? <laughs> that guy. It's similarly Saul, you know, he's just saved. He doesn't know what to expect. And so it's wonderful. The Lord Jesus is doing shuttle diplomacy here. He's given a vision to both men so they know what to expect and to be ready for the next event on the agenda. He's going to do it again in chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius. Two appearances, two visions to prepare them for something that might be difficult in some way for them. So uh, after Ananias here voices his concern, the Lord Jesus says, don't worry about it. He's mine. He's my chosen vessel. It, this is wonderful, by the way. You know, the Lord still does this today. Uh, I think many of examples, recent ones, where the Lord will prepare a believer for something in their life. Maybe someone will say to the, something to them or they'll read a scripture and it will plant a seed and then someone will come along or something will happen to confirm that the Lord was indeed preparing them for something. You ever, you ever, anybody ever experienced that? 
Don't be bashful. Yeah, I see some hands. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's like a confirmation. And that's what he's doing here. That it's his will. Uh, by the way, it's interesting. Uh, Ananias knew what was going on with Saul. He knew that Saul had the papers. I wonder how he found out. And I wonder when the believers of Damascus found out that Saul was on his way. To give him that knock on the door. You know? I would imagine that uh, they might have had a prayer meeting or two. What do you think? Lord, Saul's on his way. We know what he's already done. Help us, Lord. Protect us. Huh? I wonder if anybody in that prayer meeting would have had the boldness to say, Lord, save that man. To have the audacity to think that this man, this evil, wicked man who hates Christians, could actually get saved. I think there was. I don't know the exact details, and I don't know if they had a follow-up meeting, but just imagine what it would be like, you know, to open the meeting. Brothers and sisters, we got a real answer to prayer this week. Saul just got saved. Huh? Wow, I'd love to be there and hear that. Nothing is too great for God, and he delights in saving souls. And Saul was mindful of that. I, I, I love uh, the fact that we can read his letters. So we know what he thinks about these things. And listen to what he says about this subject. First Timothy, Paul writes this. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Isn't that wonderful? Maybe you think you're too big a sinner. Well, he goes on to say, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He says, if he can save me, he can save anybody. That's what he's saying. Well, Ananias comes in obediently and he lays hands on Paul. Remember we talked about that last week, laying on, it's not, you know, some kind of transfer of energy or something. It's an identification. And it's so wonderful. And I just love those first words, don't you? Ananias comes in, identifies with Saul as a fellow believer, and he says, Brother Saul, wow. Those would have been a contradiction in terms a few days earlier, but not now. Brother Saul, receive your sight. I love it. And immediately he receives the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, why didn't he get it like everybody else? Well, it's the same reason for the Gentiles when they uh, received it in the presence of Peter and why the Samaritans received it later from Peter laying on hands. God wants unity in the church. And by waiting until the believer comes in there and lays hands on, he's showing the interrelationship between Saul and the church. He, do, he can't do without them. And now he's part of them. It's great. 
And uh, we can only, again, just kind of imagine what must have gone on uh, during this time. The scales fell from his eyes. He got his sight. He, he was baptized right away, by the way, notice. People didn't wait to get baptized in those days. And uh, by the way, it was not a small thing for him to go out and get baptized. <laughs> right now, all the Pharisees around and, and all of his en- and now enemies that were his friends know he has taken a, taken a stand with Jesus Christ. But I love this last phrase. It says, then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And we can only imagine the fellowship that must have taken place there. You know, as the believers gathered together with Saul and he shared his testimony. And maybe he went back and talked about how the Lord had been working in his life and he'd been fighting against it. And how happy he is now to be saved. Huh? You know, Saul was a baby Christian at one time too, believe it or not. And it was during this time. And then we'll uh, finish it up with a uh, few remaining verses here. It says in verse 20, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. I love it. He goes back in the synagogues now, not to haul out the Christians, but to preach Jesus. Huh? <laughs> Imagine their shock. You know, I can just see him going into the first one. They know him. He's a well-known guy, you know, and he comes in and... and uh, they offer him the pulpit or whatever, the chance to, to say a few words. <laughs> and he proceeds to stand up and prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Woo! By the way, um, God does things his way and he can break the rules sometimes. Be careful. It's not typical that a few days after you're saved, you go out and start preaching. Okay? But uh, God chose to do that in this case. And here, I think it's just simply the overflow of his heart. He couldn't keep quiet. It all clicked now. It all made sense to him. And he had to tell people about Jesus. Already, you've got two clear evidences, by the way, that he's a true believer. One of them is he loves the believers. And number two, he has to talk about Jesus. He has a compulsion. It's a good one. Well, uh, he had to really know the scripture and uh, you'd say, well, God could really use that. Yeah, he might have uh, been able to use the verses he knew, but he had to unlearn everything he ever learned about the Scripture. He had to start all over again, you know, and relearn them. But he learned fast, and he did so well through the Holy Spirit that it says uh, he confounded the Jews and he proved that Jesus is the Christ. By the way, um, <clears throat> you may wonder... Uh, why is he called Saul here and why does it become Paul uh, later? It's very interesting. Saul, of course, is a Jewish name, Hebrew. Saul, King Saul, you know, before David. Paul is a Gentile name, a Roman name. And we're never told in here, really, you would think there would be a passage like with Peter, you know, where Jesus said, uh, you were Cephas and now you're Peter. I'm changing you from a little stone to a rock. But we don't ever have that with Paul. It just we're told who is also called Paul. I believe it was, I think Paul did it himself. And I think we have a clue from 1 Corinthians 9. 
You see, because he, he adopted a Gentile name because he was being sent to the Gentiles. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, he means Gentiles, as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. That's very important, by the way, that he says that. When he says, the Gentiles who are without law, I became as one without the law. People abuse that. And they say, to win souls, you do anything. After all, Paul said, be all things to all men, right? You ever heard that? And they abuse it. And they end up doing things that God would not approve of. And so it's so important that in this little chunk here where, where uh, Paul writes, as those, uh, to those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, he's saying, I was careful not to sin against God when I was all things to all men. So he goes on, uh, to the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some now this i do for the gospel's sake and i i think that's why uh he chose the name of paul a non-jewish word it sounds like saul but it's a gentile name and so here he is now the former enemy of christ proving that jesus is the messiah what a change from destroying the church to silencing her enemies could the lord have selected a more unlikely unpromising candidate for his service huh isn't that wonderful god is great and yet let's be careful saul is unusual in in one respect in 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 the way he was converted and nevertheless all god did was save his soul to transform him all he did was get saved like you and me brothers and sisters okay in that sense he had to go through that narrow gate that everybody has to go through and i believe it happened there when jesus said i am jesus and it all came crashing down and i think it finally made sense and he turned from his sin he really got saved and as we have that little insightful uh statement by the lord jesus it's hard for you to kick against the goats we realize the lord jesus had been shepherding saul into the kingdom of heaven all that time until finally he went through the gate that he'd been so long refusing to go through in short, Jesus won the struggle with Saul over his soul. And for the rest of his life, he never got over the marvel and the wonder of the fact that some like, someone like him could get saved. Let me just give you a couple of quotes from, from his epistles. He says about himself in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Ephesians, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Philippians. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Is this the language of your heart? Has Jesus become more precious to you than all things? Maybe you felt his goads. Maybe he's been prodding you, but you've kicked, you've fought back. In all of life's struggles, there is one that you must lose. There is one you do not want to win. And it's the struggle against God for your soul. For you to win is fatal for all eternity. Let me appeal to you. If he's been prodding you, stop kicking. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just marvel at your love, your grace, your patience, your kindness toward us. And Lord, we pray that if there be anyone here today whom you have been prodding, you have been trying to coax through that narrow gate into eternal life, oh Lord, we pray they would stop fighting today, that they would surrender to you, the lover of their souls. Oh Lord, we pray this might be the day of salvation for them. Help them, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.